Welcome to the Resound Worship Songwriting Podcast, episode 117. I'm Joel Payne. I'm Sam Hargreaves. And I'm Steve Walton. And Steve is here for an interview special to look at songwriting and the book of Acts. Steve, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's great to be with you. Now, we need to say at this point that uh, you and Sam have been, uh, you probably taught Sam and have subsequently been colleagues. Is that right? Been colleagues? Um, I don't think we've been colleagues, but I did teach Sam when he was a student at LST. Um, we, were, we were briefly overlapping. When I started uh, right. teaching at LST, You, you, I think you were about a year still in the building. Right. Okay. I, I vividly remember Sam's dissertation. Yes. Which was, which was on Jesus Is Your Girlfriend songs. And it was brilliant. <laughs> Did that one get passed Thanks, around the faculty when it when he's written it? Does it, it work was, like that? It was well known for a number of years and got referred to. And it was top class work. Yeah. Oh, Steve. So, Steve, nice. obviously, you, you, um, our connection is London School of Theology. But just tell us a little bit more about yourself, um, who you are, what you do. Sure. I'm Senior Research Fellow at Trinity College Bristol, which is an Anglican Theological College, and my main role there is working with doctoral students, um, quite a lot of whom are working on the Book of Acts, because that's my own area of interest. I'm writing a commentary on Acts for the word Biblical Commentary. You'll, you'll see the first volume this coming October, which is on Acts chapters 1 to 9. Gotcha. Now, I... I love a good commentary, and in my mind, I may be wrong, but to me, the word biblical commentary series is kind of the daddy of commentaries. Is that fair? That they're quite, they're sort of, they're big volumes. They're quite. I just remember, is it quite? It's quite a good gig, isn't it? Yeah, it is, and I, I've been writing this for quite some time, but it's been a great privilege to do it. Um, I always tell my students and pastors, like my wife to start with the explanation section, which is the very last section on each part of the book, because that then gives you the clear overview of what's going on in that section, and then go back to the detail, because otherwise you will absolutely drown in the detail, because there is a lot of it. That is so Maybe helpful. you convince the editors to, to put them the <laughs> other way around. It's all right. The explanation first. <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's interesting because I write my explanation sections last. But when Jimmy yeah. Dunn was doing Romans, he wrote his explanation sections first wow. and then went and wrote the comment section, which is the very detailed yeah. verse-by-verse stuff. Mm. That's really interesting because I was, I was going to say that my favourite bit of any Bible commentary is the introduction before mm-hmm. it gets to the to all the verse by verse stuff, because I find if you read that, then you it's so much easier to make sense of anything that you read in the in the rest of the book. And it's similar to what you're saying. It's kind of it's the the broader picture, the bigger picture mm. helps you make sense of what you read. Do you get mm. because you're doing the first volume? Do you get to do the big introduction section, or, or is there um, a similar thing in each volume? Well. Um, I've made a deliberate decision to hold off most of what goes into traditional introduction to the end of volume three, which will be the stuff about who the author is, when they're writing, where they're writing, all that kind of stuff. So at the beginning of volume one, I've got 
two kind of essays. One is about the text, because among the manuscripts we've got of Acts, there are two rather divergent texts, one of which is about six and a half percent longer than the other. So I needed to talk about that and talk about how I've made the decision which text I'm commenting on. And the other Mm. is um, a a piece I've called What Kind of Commentary Is This?, which is Mm. trying to explain what I think I'm trying to do in the commentary. Um, I'm sure I'll still get reviews that say, well, if I was writing a commentary, I wouldn't have done it this way. But um, <laughs> but I've at least tried to explain to my readers what I'm doing. And, and in brief, what kind of commentary are you writing? What's your what's your approach to this particular commentary? I'm, I'm trying to write a commentary that is strong on the message and theology of the book. Um, whereas um, there are lots of other really interesting questions about Acts not least the historical questions about what evidence have we got that this stuff happened. Um, But I'm much more interested in how Luke's put the stories together and what Mm. he's communicating by doing it that way. Mm. Brilliant. And if um, you could sort of, if there's something that you could help people understand about Acts, um, what would be some of the keys to kind of understanding, you know, Luke's intention and, and would kind of unlock it for people? First and foremost, Acts is a book about God. Um, hmm. Now, the mistake that is made in reading Acts is thinking Acts is a book about the church. Hmm. And that whereas, in fact, it's God who's the driver of the whole narrative. So it begins In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach. That's one Mm. one. Now, the implication of that is Acts is about what Jesus continues to do and teach. So it's not Mm. that Jesus is an absentee after his ascension to the Father's right side, but he's engaged and active. Think, for instance, of... um, the healing of Aeneas in Acts chapter 9. Peter says to Aeneas, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Mm. In other words, it's not that Jesus um, is absent from the narrative. He's physically absent from earth, but he's active Mm. on earth from heaven. Um, And similarly, uh, perhaps the most crucial moment in Acts is the event of Pentecost, And there, in 233, um, Peter says, um, Jesus has been raised to the Father's right side. He's been given the Holy Spirit. So Jesus has been given the Holy Spirit by the Father. And he now has poured out what you now see and hear. Now, that's, that's stunning because we know the Spirit is to empower his people to live and witness for him. But it's a stunning development, because if you ask in Judaism of the period who can give the spirit to people, the answer is the God of Israel and the God of Israel alone. In other words, Jesus pouring out the spirit Mm. shows that Jesus belongs in the same category as the father and is deserving of the same worship and honor. Now, that's that's a stunning, stunning development and means that worship of Jesus is something that goes back 
to the very earliest days of the yeah. Christian community. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So, so keep having God at the center is significant. When, when the early Christians, when Peter and John are brought before the Jewish council, the Sanhedrin, in chapter four, and told to stop speaking about Jesus, they go back and meet the other believers and pray, and they pray for boldness to speak, and that's exactly what the Spirit then does. The building's shaken in four thirty-one. And they speak the word of God boldly. But also, in that weird little story in chapter 16, 6 to 12, you've got um, the Spirit stopping them going to places. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. so the Spirit um, both directs and closes doors to misdirect um so, so that they eventually end up in Alexandria Troas on the, the west coast of modern Turkey. And Paul then has this vision by night of the man of Macedonia saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And, and through that vision, God directs them to go across to, um, to Philippi, as it turns out. So the, the movement is God's handiwork, and that's especially so in the major theme of the inclusion of Gentiles. Um, mm. it, God takes the initiative with Philip when mm. he goes to the, San, the Samaritans in chapter 8, and when he meets the Ethiopian official in the second half of chapter mm. 8, God, God directs him God acts in Samaria to heal and to cast out demons and so on. And then God, God sends Philip off into the middle of nowhere, um, into the road to Gaza, which, alas, we know all too much yeah. about now. Yeah. Um, mm. and, and he meets this guy trogging along in his chariot. Now, don't think Roman chariot because he's a civil official, not a military official. So think okay. a big, low ox cart. He's got a driver because yeah. he's sitting reading the scriptures and all reading in the ancient worlds, reading aloud. But God puts Philip and the, the Ethiopian together. <clears throat> Similarly, in chapter 10, God puts Peter and the Roman centurion Cornelius together because Cornelius has a vision of an angel Peter has this bizarre vision of the sheep with the animals on the roof. Mm. And, um, and Cornelius has meanwhile sent some of his guys to, to Peter. And Peter's now all prepared to have an invitation to go to a Gentile's house. So, so um, what in some circles are called divine appointments is, mm. is a really significant thing in the way that the mission develops. Otherwise, Peter would never have thought of going to a Gentile's house because gen Gentile mm. food is dodgy. Um, yeah. And and Gentiles yeah. themselves are pretty dodgy as well. <laughs> um, and if they're Roman yeah. centurions, that's getting worse. Yeah. So, yeah. so that thing about God being the driver of the narrative, I think, is one of the most central things to realise. So when you're reading a story mm. in Acts, ask what God's doing. Mm. Ask how God's yeah. engaged with 
the believers, those who are not yet believers, because the Lord opens Lydia's heart in Philippi in chapter 16. Um, mm. So so ask where where God's what God's up to. What's what's Luke saying about God, about God's purposes, and and the kind of response God wants from those who follow him. That's really good. And you you also mentioned that key theme of inclusion of the Gentiles. And I guess we could include in that the kind of Jerusalem Council and the, you know, the, the questions about whether Paul's um, mm. Paul's ministry is, is justified mm. in going to mm. Gentiles. And that, that does seem to be really key. I was wondering if you've uncovered any surprises along the way. Um, have you, as you write this, are you kind of... Um, you just obviously you're drawing on decades of of research of your own but are there any things that are sort of new to you or have come at you afresh um i i keep discovering the text is more puzzling than i thought it was <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> um, that's probably encouraging to us um and and i find myself thinking that's really interesting why is that there um I mean, for instance, the the significance Mm. of Isaiah 49.6, which talks about being a light to the nations. Now, it's it's there in Luke's gospel. Aged Simeon, in his song in Luke 2.32, speaks about Jesus coming as a light to enlighten the Gentiles and glory to your people Israel, um, which is in what us Anglicans know as the Nunc Dimittis. That gets... Now, that's a clear echo of Isaiah 49.6. When Paul speaks in Pisidian Antioch in Acts 13, he quotes that text as the justification for turning to go to the Gentiles in Antioch when the synagogue folk get unhappy about him attracting Gentiles to the faith. And, and of mm. course, it's there in Acts 1.8 where the phrase, to the end of the earth, is directly from Isaiah 49.6. So, mm. I, and, and that verse in Isaiah 49 is a really significant, is in one of the so-called servant passages in Isaiah, where mm-hmm. um, God's servant, which is ideally Israel, is being described. Now, that's picked up, as you know, in the Gospels, in terms of Jesus as God's servant. Yeah. But this seems to be saying, that God's people, God's church, are also to be God's servants. Now, it was noticing that sequence of things with that, with how Isaiah forty nine six is picked up that helped me to see that. Um, mm. So, and and that's the tip of a huge iceberg yeah. of the use of scripture in the Book of Acts, where the Old Testament scriptures are are really significant. They're quoted like in the Jerusalem Council, where Amos 9, 11 and 12 gets quoted by James. But they're also alluded to in little phrases like the to the end of the earth all over the place. Mm. So, so looking for scripture, and if you've got one of those Bibles that has cross-references to, to the Old Testament, that can be really helpful in spotting those, um, especially if you're less familiar with the Old Testament. I can almost hear now the cogs whirring in the brains of the songwriters listening to this, where they think, oh, something about light to the nation, something about the servant songs, or oh, something that joins up this and this, the kind of it's the way we think. <laughs> we're looking for that, we're looking for that little key, that one phrase, that the, which either is going to become the hook or become the, the thing that 
because you've got to focus in for a song. You can't write the whole of the book of Acts in <laughs> in one song. Well, someone will have a go, I guarantee. Yeah. But it's yeah. it's but, th- those little things are so good. Yeah, a pivotal verse like Acts one eight. You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Um, it that's in a sense setting a program for the book of Acts. Now, I think mm. I think it's an unfinished program. I don't think Rome is the end of the earth, which is where Paul finishes up in Acts twenty-eight. Um, Rome was actually considered the centre of the earth um, in the ancient world, not not the the end. Um, and mm. the the end of the earth seems to just mean everywhere. And again, that's an Isaiah echo, because in Isaiah forty-nine to the end of the earth means that the word of God will go everywhere. And and you see signs of that. Um, interestingly, with um, the Ethiopian eunuch, um, some of the secular Greek writers speak of Ethiopia as the end of the earth because it's the mm. kind of most southerly place that they yeah. know of because yeah. they've not discovered yeah. sub-Saharan Africa. Um, so... Mm. So that again, you know, that's an, a really interesting little phrase. Um, could help us out a little bit, Steve, if you would, with this this whole idea of how to read a story and and see the message in it. You know, we've mm. last year we did two Corinthians with our um, songwriters, mm. and there we've got something is sort of more directly well speaking to us, speaking to the Corinthians. Mm. Um, but obviously, much of the Bible is narrative, mm. and Yet it's there for us to draw theology and mm. messages and lessons from. What what would be to some good principles in how to approach a story like Acts to to understand what is Luke trying to say? Well, th- I guess there are the, the thing to ask is how is this person lined up or not lined up with God's purposes? Um, so, for instance, mm. um, the the Jewish false prophet Bar Jesus in Cyprus in, in chapter 13 is somebody who's absolutely not lined up with the purpose of God because he tries to stop Sergius Paulus, the governor, from hearing the message about Christ from Barnabas and Paul. Um, whereas the governor's openness to hear is a model of how to how to respond and how to engage with the message. So so the relationship of people to God and to the gospel message is clearly very significant. Um, the, the places where we get explicit, God said this or God did this, it are, are clearly important. Um, and the repetition of patterns, I think, is important. For instance, I had a student a while ago write a 5,000-word piece about the passage in Acts 2.42, where you get these four things. Um, So you get the the fellowship, the breaking of bread, the prayers, and the apostles' teaching as the four items. That And then 43 to 47 in chapter 2 unpacks those. My student went away and looked at the little vignettes you get in Acts of what it looks like when a church meets together, like... The, the story in Acts 20 where poor old Eutychus 
his name means lucky, by the way. Um, oh, does it? <laughs> falls out of a window and he's dead. Well, you know. <laughs> There's a deep irony to his name. But oh, yeah. that story shows you them breaking bread together, Paul teaching quite a long time, which is why poor old Eutychus does fall asleep. So you start to see elements of that. Um, you start to see the sharing in Acts 11, when Agabus the prophet says there's going to be a famine and the church in Syria and Antioch say, OK, we better send some help to our sisters and brothers in Judea. And they do through Barnabas and Paul. So there's the, 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 um, the, the fellowship, because fellowship means sharing mm, yeah. things. And... Yeah. Acts 2, 43 to 47 makes it clear they do share things. So my, what my student did was track those four things from Acts 2, 42 across the book of Acts and say, mm. in there is a regular occurrence of these four things, not necessarily every one on every occasion, but they do occur regularly enough for us to think that this this verse in 2.42 is what us scholars like to call programmatic. It's it's setting a pattern that's to be followed. Um, I think you can mm. make the same case for 2.38, where you um, repent, you're baptised, you receive the forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. Um, and 2.39, mm. I'd add, you join with the people of God. So those five elements, if you track the conversion stories, and I had another student do a piece about this, um, if you if you track <laughs> the conversion stories across the book of Acts, again, you won't find all five every time, and you won't always find them in the same sequence. Um, because, for instance, in Cornelius' house, the spirit falls on them before they've been baptised in water. Um, but again, there's enough of a regular pattern to say, yeah, there's something here that Luke's saying that he wants the church he's writing for to get this message. Um, so I think patterns is something really significant. Um, and that, um, let me give you an example with wealth and poverty. Wealth and poverty is a major theme in Luke's gospel. Um, and of course, Acts is Luke's volume two. Um, and it's striking that, for instance, you get the parable of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke 16, where the rich man walks every day past poor Lazarus, who's sitting at his gate. And he's condemned because he's not cared for, for Lazarus. And Lazarus is welcomed into um, the presence of Abraham in the story. Hmm. Now, that's played out by believers who sell property or possessions to help needy believers like Barnabas at the back end of Acts 4. Um, mm. Like the Syrian church, Syrian Antioch church, which sends gifts to Jerusalem. Um, uh, and by Paul in Acts 20, um, at the end of his speech to the Ephesian elders in 33 to 35, he talks about... Um, I've not hung on to possessions. I've not coveted anybody's um, gold or silver or clothes. Um, I'm just like mm. today, posh clothes are considered a form of riches. Um, but, right. I says, yeah. I've worked with my hands. 
options um, to provide for my companions. And we, we know from Acts 18 in Corinth that he works in tent making, leather working, something like that. So the, mm. the handling of possessions isn't necessarily the same as the way it happens in the early days in Jerusalem. But it's there in different forms. And it's, it's pulling a theme through that's been in Luke's gospel too. Yeah. So, so if if it's a thread from Luke's gospel, you're probably onto something that's right on the money. I would say. That even even that, Steve, is probably something that probably people know, but also forget when they read Acts. Is that it is we think written by Luke, and therefore you can kind of pull those themes across from one to the other. I mean, I was very fortunate when I was at LST. Uh, I did the class with you and Conrad on Luke Acts, mm. and we used to sit around in the in the in the conference room and and chat about Luke Acts for for hours and hours. Mm. Um, but yeah, it probably it's probably worth people you know having that in mind. And even I suppose a good exercise is probably if you can to try and read the two books you know in a few sittings yeah. and and actually mm. see if you can pick up yeah. the themes that you know Luke is planting in his gospel and then he is then you know drawing over into how the church works out in Acts. yeah i'm i'm a big fan of using highlighters and underlining to 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 do that sort of thing when you're reading um and of course these days with things like um the bible apps that you can get you can print out large yeah. chunks of text hmm so you can go through and highlight things which is it and so you can go through and use the same color for a theme right through and then you can say oh it pops up here and here and here and here how about worship um sort of thinking about you know we're we're a bunch of songwriters writing for mm. for gathered worship are there patterns or pictures of of gathered worship in acts that we can learn some stuff it, from it's interesting there's relatively little um but the, the mm. images there are are really interesting. There's only one um, prayer that's described in full, and that's the one in 4.23 to 30, when they return from persecution and they're told not to speak about Jesus. I'd love to see somebody mm. set that to music, because um, what it does yeah. is pick up Psalm 2 and shows them praying scripture and identifying the characters in psalm 2 with the characters in recent history um, with the mm. the death of jesus and the resurrection of jesus and the way god has has beaten them by raising jesus from the dead um, the um you get hints at other things for instance when stephen is being murdered he has this vision of Jesus at the right hand of God, um, standing to welcome him. And um, mm. he prays to Jesus. Now, that is a stunning development in first century Judaism, because you're supposed to pray to God and yeah. to God alone. So, <clears throat> so things that invite you to engage with, with prayer and worship of Jesus, I think are, are something striking. There's a, a scholar called Larry Hurtado who, who's done work on um, this thing, and he argues that through the New Testament, and the Stephen passage is one of his key examples, 
you get this what he calls a binitarian form of worship where you've got jesus placed alongside the father as the one to be worshipped mm. um the spirit is is there in acts 2 um and the spirit's actions are the kind of actions that god carries out but not quite as clearly as as the actions of the father and jesus um the spirit's the power behind the church yeah but it, you need to mm. go to john and to paul to find the idea of the spirit being personal more clearly um for mm. instance in romans there are a string of verbs which have the spirit as subject and their personal actions. The spirit can be grieved. The spirit speaks. The spirit mm. feels. Uh, um, th- running through Romans, you don't get that quite so clearly in Acts. I, I remember um, when doing similar things, studying Luke Acts. Well, actually, no, I remember doing um, Acts and Paul, um, sort of new mythology of Acts and Paul mm. with William, and this idea that you just try not to read one author into the other one and i think that's that's quite a, a helpful idea isn't it just try what don't read what paul says about the spirit mm. try and see what is in acts you know, especially if you're going to write your song it's quite yeah. a good discipline there's no reason you can't cover the whole theological breadth but it's a good discipline just have you really seen yes. what this particular yes. author yes because god has given us 27 books not not one yeah and and seeing the hills and valleys uh, of the New Testament is is really quite significant because there's a richness there. It's not like a flat plain. Mm. Um, you um, you mentioned just at the beginning of uh, I, just, I just want to digress ever so slightly because you you said at the beginning Acts tells us relatively little about how they gathered to worship, mm. and of course. In some ways, the New Testament tells us very, relatively little, <laughs> and yet we're the, we're often rather obsessed with how we gather to worship and how we get it right. Yeah, and I, I just sort of wonder why you think why you think the New Testament is quite light on that. Um, well, in in the case of Acts, I think it's because Luke has got his eye so much on God and God's purposes, on on what the missiologists today call the mission of God, um, and that's that's mm. his focus. So. He, um, God's mission has a church rather than the church yeah. having a mission. Um, mm. Whereas I think elsewhere, you, you get little hints of this, like the passages in Ephesians and Colossians about singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, the stuff in First Corinthians about what happens when you meet together and people prophesy and, and interpret it. Um, the the interesting hints in First John, where John addresses um, you, you father, you, you fathers, you older people, you women, you younger people, which implies you've got a, a mixed age gathering when they meet together. Mm. Um, mm. You've got, of course, the amazing pictures in Revelation four and five of the worship of heaven. Um, now that's something that absolutely invites being set to music, um, be, because there you'll see the curtains taken aside, and you're seeing mm. what worship's like. The, the Eastern Orthodox Church has loved these passages because they mm. they have this idea that when we join in worship on earth, we're not initiating anything. We're just joining in with what's already going on in heaven. 
um, mm. because of these visions of uh, of worship of the Lamb that you get there. Um, so it's there, but the letters particularly are much more concerned about um, here are the issues the church is facing. How do we deal with them? And apart from things like the stuff in First Corinthians, by and large, the the way the church worships God is not not so much of an issue, I don't think. And also, as as you'll know well, the language of worship is never applied to what Christians do when they meet together. Um, it's got this huge scope, Romans 12, 1. You offer yeah. your bodies as a living sacrifice, which is your spiritual worship. And that fits very much mm. with the Old Testament scriptures, where there isn't this kind of sphere called worship, and then there's everything else. The whole of life is the sphere in which you bring honour and glory to God. And that's mm. expressed, of course, at particular times when we meet together by the way we speak, the way we sing, the way we listen. Um, but it's mm. it's not... not it, I think the New Testament authors are more concerned about the whole of life than the hour we spent together once a week. Well, I'm interested, moving on from that, if, I mean, if there isn't so much in Acts... Um to talk to us about gathered worship i do wonder if there are themes you've mentioned a few already but are there other themes within acts or or stories that you think a songwriter could uh usefully pick up on or explore yeah yeah the the evangelistic speeches in acts have a strong focus on the resurrection of jesus okay. mm. um interestingly i mean luke Luke has told us about the death of Jesus in his gospel. So he tells us in Luke 18, 31 to 33, about where Jesus announces that he's going to Jerusalem to die and he'll be raised. And then he tells us the story of Jesus' death very fully in Luke chapter 23. The emphasis in the evangelistic speeches is God has raised this Jesus from the dead. Mm -hmm. Um, and that means he is now in the place of authority in the universe and you need to bow to him. So the resurrection and the ascension, which which I think are two parts of one action, really, um, belong yeah. together. And so Peter, for instance, in, in Acts 2, quotes from two of the Psalms, Psalm 16 and Psalm 110, um, to explain what's going on in the resurrection of Jesus, that it can't be that David in Psalm 110, when he says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand, he can't be talking about himself mm. because we've got David's tomb here in the city. Um, he must be talking about somebody else and that somebody else must be Jesus, whom God has raised from the dead. Um, in Athens, in Acts 17, Jesus' right to judge the world is because God has raised him from the dead. So the resurrection of Jesus, I think, is a neglected theme. I did once go to a church on Easter Day evening, and we sang songs only about the death of Jesus. And I was a bit, <laughs> I was a bit shocked. You uh, need to send them to Sam. He'll sort them out. <laughs> 
Well, Joel, you've just put out a resurrection song. Well, that's true. Or a couple of resurrection yeah. songs, actually. <laughs> but I think I think it would be worth looking at the evangelistic speeches. Um, yeah. In Acts two, Acts three, Acts thirteen, Acts seventeen, particularly, because um, mm. what Luke does, I think, is give us model speeches and then leaves us to assume that in other places they said the same stuff. In fact, he makes, makes that explicit in in Iconium in Acts fourteen one. He's been in Pisidian Antioch. We've got this big speech in Acts 13. And then he says, and the same thing happened in Iconium. <laughs> gotcha. So, so he, he, he had his talk, he gave it. He doesn't cut and paste. <laughs> he, he, he tells us this is what's yeah. going on. But I think it's worth looking at those and saying, what is it that flows from the resurrection of Jesus? Yeah. Or for him and for us um i think that's that's one thing um the, and and with that i think goes the ascension which i think is a neglected theme um i suspect in the church it's neglected because ascension day is always on a thursday although the church yeah. in england latterly has been celebrating the ascension on the sunday after that thursday which i think is a great thing because the Ascension is Jesus' coronation day, um, yeah, where yeah. he's recognised as ruler. Um, so that I, th I think that um, as a theme about Jesus mm. is is a crucial one. Um, I'm not the other the other thing that I think is worth thinking about, um, and I'm not sure how you write songs about this, but let me talk about it anyway. Is engaging with the culture around you. Yeah, um, the way Peter preaches in Jerusalem is different from the way Paul preaches in Athens. Mm. Um, and in Athens, um, when Paul walked from the harbour to the centre of town, he'd have encountered literally dozens of statues and temples to gods and past Roman emperors who were worshipped as gods. Luke says that the city in 1716 was a forest of idols, and that's mm. uh, th that's the term he uses, and and that's absolutely true. Um, and we know what the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers Paul encounters in 1718, because we've got a lot of their writings and the busts of key philosophers. Mars Hill, where the Areopagus, the Council of Athens, meets, is still there, and you can go and see Paul's speech um, in Greek at, at the foot of the Areopagus. Um, yes. So there's there's a lot about the world that Paul's in, and then the speech in Athens speaks into that world yeah. by saying, um, "Okay, you guys." You're asking me about the message that I've brought. And it, we know from the role of the Areopagus that, that they were asking a question about why should we let you build a temple to Jesus? That that was one of the things the city council controlled. And they needed to know that mm. there had to be enough worshippers of this new God. They needed to know that they had enough money to build a proper temple and to employ priests to offer sacrifices and to build a statue of the God. And Paul in the Athens speech just undermines all of that. The, the God whom, whom, whom 
the God who's around, you already know, you just don't know his name. He's an unknown God. Um, and um, he doesn't need temples made by human hands because he made everything. Right. Yeah. He mm. doesn't need um, statues because he's made humanity in his image. We are the image of God. So you don't need an image of the gods. He doesn't need anyone to serve him, i.e. provide meat and food and sacrifices. Mm. Mm. In fact, he provides for what we need by giving us food and and so on. So so Paul just completely undermines the world view and offers yeah. them a worldview that's clearly drawn from the scriptures in in speaking about that and and finishes up at Jesus who has been exalted and therefore will be the judge of all. So mm. I I wonder if there are ways of engaging with culture which yeah. Um, say, here's the narrative of culture and here's the Christian. That's great. That's really helpful. I can imagine some of our writers doing that. Um, Steve, we're going to wrap up in a moment. You've given us so much and I feel like I, I would happily sit here and talk for hours about it, but I think everyone, everyone will switch off. Um, as we wrap up, you know, one can imagine um, that commentary writing is quite a, a dry thing that happens in a study filled with books and um, so on. But I, I would I would imagine that through the course of writing and researching so on, there will be moments where you pause to worship yes. or moments where you pause to pray or intercede. And I, I don't know, are there any of those that, that stand out in your memory? The, sort of, what made Steve worship as he, as he researched and wrote about the Book of Acts? I, I wrote an essay about the Christology, the understanding of Jesus in the Book of Acts. And, and that just took my breath away. Um, it, yeah realizing what a huge picture of of jesus the book of acts gives us and of his his present place at the right hand of the father um was just breathtaking um i think there are also times when um i've been led to repentance because Mm. i've realized that i'm falling into the trap of um wanting to take god's job over and control things um and and the book of acts tells me that's not the way to do it the book of acts tells me you need to engage with god and and engage with what god's doing rather than you setting the agenda now god is perfectly capable as that little story in 16612 shows us if you're going the wrong way of saying no no stop i want you to go a different way but staying open to that, I think, is really quite significant. That's great, Steve. Thank you so much for uh, sharing some of your insights with us. Um, and you said that the the commentary will it should be out in the autumn. Is that right? The first volume, which should cover Acts chapters one yeah. to nine. Um, I'm yeah. afraid it's going to be three volumes in total. Um, <laughs> if you want the rest, you're going to have to wait quite a yeah. while. <laughs> but my my friend Beverly Gaventer did a really fine little commentary on Acts in 2003 in the Abingdon New Testament commentary series. And that's, yeah. that's top of my shopping list oh, great. Um, on, on Acts if you want a, a commentary. And it's it's kind of 250 pages, so about 10 pages a chapter. Yeah. 
so it's it's a manageable size commentary whereas mine mine is not going to be a manageable size commentary <laughs> great stuff well Steve thanks so much for joining us and then um, and once we get some songs written we will um, find a way to uh, share some of them with you because Mm. hopefully you'll be really encouraged Mm. I'd love that these are songs to be written and sung in people's real churches it's not just abstract these are and and so it's quite exciting to think that these that these themes and uh, studying this can um, can lead into some of that in our gathered worship thanks so much okay you're welcome